The new Elite Bet app has arrived. It's got all the betting features you expect and new ones you're going to love. Elite Bet is your one-stop shop on race day with Hot Bet, where you can back the tips of proven winning punters. Build fast sports multis and play same game multis. The Elite Bet app is the smoothest betting experience around. Trusted for 10 years, Elite Bet is 100% Australian owned. The only betting app you need is Elite Bet. Gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast, a show where we explore the world of sport, music and business, and deconstruct the tools and ethos of world-class performers to create growth and optimize business. I'm Noel Allnett, the CEO of Securo, and today I'm talking to David Poir, the CEO of Gradability, a company that helps people achieve their career goals. David has had some intense experiences that we can all learn from, and he's gone on to build a highly successful business. Building Resilience Podcast. David Poir, welcome to the Building Resilience Podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Noel. Good to be here. David, it's great to connect today. Today, I'd love to, first of all, understand more about yourself. Um, I like to start at the start with our guests. So, born in Singapore, you've ended up in Aussie. You've gone from being David to Dave. Talk me through that journey. Uh, look, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, as you said, I was born and raised in Singapore. Um, I had not the most typical upbringing, I suppose, from a Singaporean perspective, because, you know, Singapore tends to be a, a society where you're very much brought up on, you know, studying, making sure you're doing, doing the right thing in school. My parents were very... Um, uh, well, they obviously wanted us to to do that growing up, but we had a very strong sort of sporting background. Like we, you know, we were put into we were swimming from a very young age, competitive swimming, and then we moved into water polo. Uh, my brother and I, my brother's two years older, is two years older than me, uh, and then ended up playing rugby, uh, and that sort of given me a lot of the sort of basis for for how I've evolved as a person. You know, team sports are, are a big uh, well, shaping tool, shaping mechanism, I suppose, for a lot of people, uh, and then. You know, and then potentially I put a bit too much emphasis on the sport, and not enough on the study, and so I didn't get to university <laughs> uh, in Singapore, which is uh, which is embarrassing. But um, uh, you know, got the opportunity to, to come to Australia, went to went to UWA uh, in Perth, uh, where you know, which was really was effectively was the last place in the world I wanted to go to. I, I wanted to go to the UK. Um, I had dreams of of studying uh, somewhere up there, and uh, I, I then you know when I was told that. You, you know, we're going to send you to Australia. I thought I'll go to Sydney, uh, and then that was like not going to happen. And I eventually ended up in Perth. Uh, and then about three weeks after I got there, I went, I, "I love this place. I think I might want to stay here." So that was sort of the loosely that was the the how I ended up here. All right, and talk me through your early days in getting into sport and uh, what the rugby scene was like in in Singapore and how you got into that. And just a bit more around the. The kind of context of the of how the sports played up there in the in the different codes. Well, I started playing rugby at a very young age. My, you know, my parents uh, were both involved at, at the Singapore Cricket Club, which is a weird name for a rugby club, but it's the last bastion of the Raj in Singapore. It's where, uh, for a long time, it was the the premier sort of rugby club. Um, and yeah, I started playing there at, at a relatively young age, and also did it through school. Um, you know, a lot of the sport uh, in Singapore, a lot of the sports people sort of peak at school. <laughs> Pretty sure I did as well, um, because you know it's, it's such a commercial sort of business focus that a lot of people give up sport uh, once they sort of leave school. Um, but I found it, you know, the opportunity to meet people, pro- professionals who were, 
you know, uh, very successful what they were doing. You you you, you learn a lot uh, from them. Uh, you learn a lot about you know how they operate. And I was lucky enough to get picked. I was actually picked for the national team the just after we broke the world record for the biggest loss in history. Um, <laughs> yeah, one hundred sixty three thirteen to that other world power, Hong Kong. Um, so and then and then they you now they they sort of. Um, Moved on the whole, that you've had a new new management structure come in in, the, in terms of the, the union, uh, and they call for fresh trials. I was twenty years old. I went along uh, just for a laugh. Really, I thought there was no way I was getting in, and made it through all the teams, uh, all the trial uh, trials into the team, uh, which was a shock. And then, um, yeah, made my made my test uh, debut in twenty in nineteen ninety five, uh, and then in March ninety six tore my ACL and uh, didn't play another test for seven years. Wow. Wow! So that was a long time. So seven years between the between games. Yep. Yeah. It, it it was it was it was pretty brutal. I mean, you know, I was, like I said, I was twenty years old when it happened. Um, in and again with the the sort of the way, um, you know, Singapore is in terms of uh, how conservative it is from a um, sporting perspective and a medical perspective. The the, the surgeon basically said, uh, you know, you should give it up. You, you know, there's more important things to do with your life, and I and, and I sort of. I got pretty. I think I fell into a little bit of depression. I didn't realize this till much, much later. Uh, and uh, you know, but then I moved to Australia to go to university. I started playing rugby again. You know, didn't have any aspirations of playing at a high level. I actually got told I was a number eight when I left in, in the back row. Uh, and then when I got here, you know, I clearly put on some weight. As <laughs> 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 happens, and, and my coach to the best of us. Oh, it's it's a it's a terrible journey. Um, as you, you know, as you get fat and you get put further in front, and, and the uh, one of the coaches said, "Look, you could be a very, uh, you could be a very slow back rower, or you could be a an okay uh, hooker." And I was like, "All right, you know, what's there to lose?" So I started playing in the front row. You know, played both prop and hooker, and then eventually, when I went back to Singapore, got picked uh, in those positions uh, again, which was uh, which was a bit of a shock. Uh, but it was really nice to actually get back in uh, to the team. You know, a lot of the guys I played with growing up were still there, uh, and then you know had one tournament and moved back to it, moved to Australia. I'm sure there's a lot of people who, uh, a lot of gents who played uh, fullback and winger uh, sometime in the uh, sometime in the 90s, which are now playing a bit of senior rugby as uh, as proper hooker. I'm sure it's a it's not a rite of passage that a lot of people choose to go on, but I think it's one that actually often naturally happens as uh yeah as uh as, as things like uh, alcohol and uh, eating out and earning a bit more money than when you're 20 years old settle into modern life <laughs> yeah I, I, it's it's a curse it's <laughs> it's um i mean look it, it what it did do was it uh from a playing perspective it probably prolonged my career probably you know gave me uh the ability to play a bit longer than i thought i was going to um but you know, you never want to be told, you know, you're too fat to be in this position, go out in front. But in those days, you could tell someone that. So, yeah. so what did you do in that gap between um, <clears throat> serious injury um, and then seven years on, you played again? But what were the what were the takeaways? You didn't have rugby in your life because physically you couldn't because of the nature of that. What did you do to, to make the most of those years? And, and how did you grow off the rugby field? Yeah, look, I, th- I think, you know, I, I still, uh, you know, I took probably a year, year and a half off uh, playing. I, I didn't think I would play again. 
Um, and it was it was a big hole. I left a massive hole uh, in in my life. I'd always identified as a sports person, um, so to not be able to do that was you know was really um, uh, it, it left a real big gap in 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 you know who I sort of identified as, who I saw myself as. And I had to try and find different ways to to sort of plug that gap. I wasn't, I, I, to be honest, I wasn't very successful at it. But what it did teach me, not at the time, what it's taught me since is the the um, you know life isn't all about you know roses and sunshine. It's it's not uh, beer and skittles. You, you're going to get setbacks. You're going to have uh, challenges that come your way, and you're going to have to find ways to either learn from them. Or reinvent yourself, and and part of that sort of reinvention from a sporting context was going well. You know, you, you, I'm relatively big for a Singaporean, but I'm not that big for a you know rugby player in Australia. So when I did start playing again, it was like, well, I'm not going to be able to do the things that I used to be able to do. I'm going to have to learn different ways of doing things. I also didn't trust uh, my body to a certain extent because I was lazy with my rehab, um, and so I had to find new ways to be able to add value to what I was doing. And I think the same thing. You know the lessons that I learned from that probably apply in in terms of business at the moment. Um, you know, learning from setbacks, learning from uh, you know things where you, you might I might think oh you know I'm really good at that and then find out actually I'm not, um, and then have to you know either improve, find different ways of doing things, or find uh, a, a different uh, way to add value. So you're getting into that mindset then of kind of kind of overcoming um, overcoming trauma. In terms of injury, and then, like you mentioned, there, there's a lot of that, uh, a lot of the things that you learn from the, the that experience that allows you to give a sharper edge in business. What was the moment that you decided that you were going to um, act on your entrepreneurial spirit and start working at building organizations, having that foundation of resilience, that foundation of strength, and coming over adversity? And um, talk me through your journey into becoming an entrepreneur and a business owner. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that there was a, a specific moment uh, per se. I, I think uh, you know, where the sort of growth came, I think it, it, it was a it was a slow sort of evolution. Um, and I I really identified with you know with the company I'm with at Modern Credibility. It's you know we we specialize in helping young professionals start their careers in Australia, particularly migrants. Now I was a migrant. Or I am a migrant. Uh, and when I came, when I moved uh, here to to live and work. Uh, my visa didn't allow me to work for 12 months. So I was, you know, unemployed for 12 months. Um, you know, my wife was basically supporting, my wife's Australian, so she was basically supporting me uh, through that sort of period. And all the, all the, uh, throughout that time, you know, my, my dad kept saying to me, you need to go and start applying for jobs. And I was like, well, there's no point because there's, there's no, uh, there's no opportunity. You know, I can't, I don't have a visa that allows me to work, so I can't do that. So um, I'm just going to wait. And that was a, that was terrible. <laughs> it was a terrible decision. It was actually the worst decision I could have made because it, it it just meant I wasted a whole lot of time. There was things I could have done. I could have volunteered. I could have just done, you know, gone and helped somebody out. Um, again, through a drag beat up, different ways that I could have done things. But I just, I, in my head, I went, I you can't do this, so don't. Um, what we do at Gradability is like to help people um, understand the folly of of that sort of choice and to go, well, you actually have to make decisions now that help set you up uh, for your career, even if you don't have. Uh, you know all the tools in your kit right now to, to to be successful. You can start building them bit by bit, and that's been a real passion uh, for me. It's been it's really been the the, the why I suppose to into in terms of you know why I do what I do, um, and and that's that's sort of deeply rooted in the sense of I want to help somebody get um, you know 
the advantage that I didn't have that I didn't see at the time. Um, and that's sort of helped drive, you know, what, what I do and why I do it. And then all the lessons that you learned from that I've learned from that adversity just go into that same story because again you're facing as someone who's starting out in their career you're facing challenges you're facing issues you, you there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of I don't knows yeah and it's the same thing as coming back from an injury you 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 don't know how your body's going to react until you get that first tackle same sort of thing so you you just really have to learn or I had to teach myself this um, you know like, we're gonna get we're gonna get into this we're going to we're gonna you know do the best that we can to help everybody. And once you have that passion, once you have that drive, I suppose, to uh, make a difference, that that helps uh, everything sort of fall in place. And it makes it makes the difficult times easier. I've got a question on that because I find it's something that's so difficult to quantify. Um, as somebody who myself mentors a lot of people in our business, and I'm delighted to give advice elsewhere if I get asked for it. Um, but one of the pieces of the jigsaw that I often find um, so hard to replicate is that um, connective tissue between when you see somebody going down a certain track and journey, and you know that you've walked that before, making sure that it's consistent, that you can interject or carefully deliver the advice to help them create the change. You know, there's certain things in all industries, you know, like whether it's going to go into a job interview. You know, the things like the firmness of handshake, the eye contact, the building rapport, mm-hmm. whether it's in the sales role, again, it's that building rapport, it's those, just knowing the right activity levels to be successful. In sport, it's the extra 10 field goals you try and kick rather than walk up when the whistle blows. Everyone who's been there and done it knows that that's what success looks like, but it's slightly outside of the blueprint. It's that kind of that extra mile that the top performers have. How do you, or what tips and advice do you have to people who are mentoring and coaching other people to make sure that those 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 extra kind of ten percent, those 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 little force multipliers, get mm. to the people that we're mentoring? I I think you've got to understand who you're mentoring, right? So you know, it's like that classic: you got to walk a mile in their shoes and understand what they're going through, because you know. Each person's an individual, and how you explain something to each person differs. You, you, there's no one size fits all, I don't think. So you've got to understand, you know, what they're where they're at in their journey, and then I think that the the as a as a mentor, a lot of the times, I think the the best way to to get that across is is by actually being able to talk about your own experiences. You know, these are this is where I this is where I fell over. This is where um, you know things didn't quite work out for me. And and this these I think are where the opportunity is for you now. One thing I learned very early on is that the uh, the other person has to be ready to to receive that information. I think there's a phrase uh, when the when the student when the student's ready, the master will appear. Um, and I think you can give as much information as you want, but the other person has to be in that mindset to be ready. And a lot of times with mentoring, it's about getting them to that point of of understanding. You know, as a mentor, I'm here to help. Uh, as as someone who's been through what you're going through, here are some of the loopholes, or not loopholes, sorry, here are some of the pitfalls of you know where you can go wrong, um, and you know if you if you go down this path, this is potentially the path that I've gone down. It's not necessarily the right thing for you, you know. But ultimately, that person's got to make the decision themselves. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's um, the interjection is something that's really difficult. You we never want to kind of interfere, right? It's uh, it's trying to build that 
build that framework out so those uh, those small percentages do get across to people. What would be the number one piece of advice or the most common piece of advice that you give um, to graduates looking to get into the workplace? That it's not that it's not easy. Right? I, I think I think the the at the heart of all the advice we give is that you you've got to be able, you've got to be willing to put in the work. Right? You can't nothing's going to be handed to you on, on a on a platter, and it's not about you know having a degree and and saying well I've, I've I've arrived I've done it. It's a constant learning. It's a constant growth, and it's not learning in the sense of you know you have to do additional courses, which yes you might have to in some um, scenarios. But it's constantly learning. So if you're starting out your career, a lot of I think a lot of graduates certainly I, when I was a graduate, I remember going, "Oh, I'm a graduate. I'm, I've arrived. I'm, I've got everything." Uh, and then a bit later on, you realize how little you actually know. So it's about you know when I talk to to our students, we're talking about you know you're at the you're at the effectively the the base of the ladder and 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 or the pyramid rather. And you've got to you've got to increase that base so that you can move up because you know obviously the pyramid it it it, it peaks at the top. Um, but you've got to give yourself the opportunity to do that, and that's through learning. That's through making mistakes, not being afraid to make mistakes because they will happen. It's not a linear um, trajectory, but you've got to learn from them, and you've got to you've got to constantly be pushing yourself to learn um, and grow. It's 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 great advice, and obviously trying to get that's the the, the motivational aspect of getting people to consistently want to learn um, as well, right? And you, you, not everybody wants to, even though. Um, even though they kind of a lot of people set out to, it's kind of the the, the doing and taking action versus uh, versus saying is you know, oh. often the is is often a, a big catch um, that we've got to get over. Um, I'd like to kind of just pivot a little bit to um, some of the the kind of the the factors affecting Australian business at the moment, and I'd love to hear your lens of this. Um, so, being in cybersecurity specifically, um, on a daily basis, I'm looking at the. The, the opportunity to, to bring on new talent and the skill shortages uh, is a real problem. And it's a real problem for Australia in multiple mm-hmm. areas. What's your perspective on, on the way Australia is dealing with the skill shortage? And as we become more of a resilient nation, um, and we've had it pretty good over the years, although the last few years have been pretty tough, um, what do you think we're doing? And is it enough to bring the right talent into Australia and build the right talent within Australia as well? How much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> look, I, I think you know, as far as the skills shortage goes, we we know we have a range of factors, right? We've got an aging population. You know, we, we're not reproducing ourselves, but also from a just from a skills perspective, we just don't have enough talent in in the marketplace. That we have to bring in skilled talent from overseas. Um, I think the the over the last uh, three years, four years, probably there's been there've been mixed messages from the government, the previous government in particular, around. You know what they were, what they were wanting to bring in, what they weren't uh, wanting to bring in, and that has a, a detrimental effect in terms of people from overseas wanting to come to Australia because they go, well, I don't know whether there is a place for me. You know, we, we at the start of COVID, we sent out some really, um, I'm going to call them xenophobic messages around, um, you know, uh, international students and you know the skills that they bring, and also people wanting to come into the country. I think that. Uh, we can do a lot more. I think, from a business perspective, a lot of employers don't understand, you know, uh, how to how to engage with uh, overseas talent. There's not enough information out there. Uh, that the rules around it tend to be pretty complicated for for businesses wanting to engage, uh, you know, overseas skilled talent. There are some restrictions around, you know, how you go about doing it. I understand the need to protect, uh, you know, Australian jobs and 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 you know people um, and Australians, but 
there is very clearly a skill shortage, particularly in, in, in areas like IT, where there just isn't the talent that's available. I don't think we're doing enough to be able to encourage that. I don't think we're doing enough to encourage um, you know, overseas talent to come in. Uh, and, but, and certainly from an employer's perspective, there's not enough uh, support or knowledge um, or information, I think, around helping them understand how, you know, potentially how easy it is to to engage, um, uh, you know, skilled, overseas skilled talent, bring them in. Um, and whether that's as a temporary measure or a permanent measure, I think, we, you know, we're, we're not doing enough uh, for that. You know, I think certainly from from a gradability perspective, uh, performance education uh, it, with the professional year that we do, you know, we bring in, well, sorry, we don't bring in, but we we work with about two and a half thousand graduates every year um, who have completed their programs in Australia, who are looking to start their careers in Australia. We work with some fantastic businesses who help take them on, you know, pr- provide them with internships, train them, so that they're job ready, so that they're ready to, to walk into a into a business. Um, but then a lot of them face challenges around well. Employers won't take me on because they don't know how the visa process works. They don't know, you know, that I can, that I do actually have full work right, that I can stay here for another three, four years, and work full time for them. Um, and and so it's it's almost prohibitive to a certain extent for employers to engage with them. I think at the same time, um, from a from an outcomes perspective, anybody who's on that pathway as a as a you know student as a graduate, they want to know that at the end of that, if they've worked, if they've been in Australia for three, four years as a student. And then they've done another three, four years as a you know working and contributing society. They want to know that they can then stay here because again, that's your basically your entire adult life uh, at, up till that point where you're in this country. To then be told, as you know, as uh, as currently does happen, that you have to go back because you know we don't have a role for you. That's just not going to work for people. So, you know, they they we do need to do more. I think in that sense to encourage it, uh, the right sort of skilled migration. Yeah, I agree. It's got to be. Uh, it's got to be. There's got to be a, a proper process attached to it, and the right kind of systems. But also the the marketing from the voice of the voice of Australia. I personally think needs to improve around where we are um, yeah. and what we're doing, um, and make this place. We have got a reputation, a tough place to to come into. But then when you when once people are here, there's so much opportunity, right? So I think it's yeah. just trying to get that balance right between there. Between the narrative around come to Australia, we're welcoming, we're open. I mean, you and I are good examples of people who've landed exactly. here and, and 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 done very well in business. And um, for me, the, the 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 pathways have always been pretty clear. You know, when you've got a good idea and you you work hard, once you're here, there's some there's a real opportunity to, to do well. And um, I'd like to touch on a comment that uh, that you mentioned in the pre notes for this, um, and it really is a uh, uh, some wonderful fortune, but also very sad, in the sense of uh, you had a very lucky escape um, in the Bali bombings um, in the early two thousand. Um, could you just talk the the guests through that? It would uh, just a, your sentiment around that and how that impacted you at the time, and what the how that's impacted you uh, over the long term. Yeah, so so I was uh, I was playing rugby for the cricket club. Uh, in Singapore at the time, um, we were going to the Bali Tens tournament. Uh, that was going to be my last tour for the club uh, before I moved back to Australia. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it was a it was a it's a really difficult sort of period uh, to talk about because you know I lost eight teammates, uh, some of whom were very good friends uh, in that bombing. Um, the couple of weekends before I wasn't going on tour, but a couple of weekends before. 
some of the older um, guys were like, oh, look, you've got to come, you've got to come, you've got to come. Uh, you know, it's your last tour. And then they cornered me and my wife and said, look, you've got to let him come. My wife said, look, if he wants to go, you can go. Uh, and and I was I was picked for the, the Singapore team um, for the Asian Championship. So I wasn't, I was technically not allowed to tour. I was actually told you can't go because we've got a training camp. Uh, which turned out to be a stroke of good luck because my um, the the at that point the plan was if we if I did go my wife would come with me and my parents were going to come because it was going to be the last tour they were like oh we've never been to Bali we'll go along with you so it would have wiped out pretty much the whole family uh, if that happened um, the the sort of aftermath of that was you know obviously you know pretty traumatic um, I had I, I didn't actually know this for for a while but I, I think I had a, a version of um, potentially PTSD, definitely survivor's guilt uh, for a long time. I, I didn't get it, but, you know, I was told to go and talk to, to professionals about it, but I didn't because, you know, again, you're a, you're a young um, alpha male going, I don't need to talk that and do that. Um, and, I, and I really wish I did because it, it, you know, it took me a long time. It actually took me till the 10th anniversary of the bombs to actually ha- um, be able to talk about it openly. Um, and, and it was, I was in Melbourne and I was actually... Uh, at work and you know was really upset so I actually left the office and went uh and and had sat down in a pub uh under the staircase in a pub and had a cry for uh a considerable period of time until some people worked out where I were uh, where I was and, and sort of got me out and, and we talked about it. it was the first time I actually really talked about the the impact of that and I think from a personal perspective you know what that sort of done uh the, the whole thing was you don't go through an experience like that without uh, realizing that it's you know somebody somebody some entity out there um, is giving you a second chance uh, and you you can't waste it um, and so it it's it's a constant sort of reminder uh, for me you know most days most days I, I, at some point there'll be a, a thought that comes when you go you know I might hear something and it might re- remind me of one of the one of the guys or someone might make reference to it. Um, and it's a constant reminder that you know you're you're here. You've got a limited time, and, it, and that can go at any point. And you've got to make the best of it. Um, and you and I I try and live uh, every day uh, as best I can. Now a lot of times I don't, but I do try and do it to the best of my ability because it is, um, yeah, it's something that that has affected me, you know, greatly. Um, and I don't want to uh, let that go to a certain extent. Wow, what a moving story! And uh, the fortunate one in, in many ways, but the the harm of the collateral damage, um, I guess, from there. Um, thanks for sharing. I appreciate that. Is uh, it's not an easy thing to be tackling on a on a on a Friday morning or any time, but having that vulnerability and ability to talk about it, I'm sure. Like you mentioned there, there's. Um, Feel like this is a common theme of so many guests we have on this podcast um, i do interview quite a few uh, men from sport and um, getting out of that taboo that we can't be talking about these things whether you're alpha mm-hmm. male or someone who's a little bit more shy who uh who just doesn't find it comfortable speaking about their emotion in any sense um the the more that we uh the more that we can feed that conversation and feed that topic hopefully um over time and, and nothing happens quickly in this, um, it does enable more people to kind of put their hand up and go, hey, this happened to me and I'm not comfortable with it. And uh, it does have an effect and that's okay. And, and keep promoting the the, um, the importance of doing this. So thank you for sharing. I really appreciate it. 
No, so, so I, I think the key thing just just for that, Noel, is you know, in terms of sharing, is when you bottle it up, man. This is my experience. When you bottle it up, the only person that knows what's going on is you, and and it's just on a on a, on a loop in your in your head, in your heart, in your mind. The minute you let it out, um, it lets people in. Um, I think, it, and then and you, you know, you, you're sharing your 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 problem, and it it's massively, um, it's you know, literally, you feel weight. You know, lifting off your shoulders. It's it's a, it's a it's a it was a massive relief being able to talk about it, um, and you know being able to let people into what was a what is a very personal sort of space. So I I hundred percent be encouraging anybody if you're going through any sort of um, you know trauma personal sort of issues, let people in. It's it's really important and it's important for your own um, mind well being as well. Yeah, it really is. And I think one of the big challenges which we need to overcome is. We, we're spending a lot of time talking about getting people talking, but I think we do we underestimate the importance of creating the space and the time that it takes to talk. Yep. You can get a lot off your chest or you could get a lot of things done in a very small space of time, but you have to dedicate the time and put that um, intent and purpose in to have the space to, to talk about things and do things. And I think that's the narrative that we've been seeing internally inside our business because there's a lot of burnout um, and trauma in the cyberspace. Um, and although it's classed as kind of its business, there is so much fatigue around what's going on in Australia. You know, and that's these, the impact of these breaches is, is far-ranging. It's not just it's not just clickbait on the Channel 9 news. It's people are being severely impacted by this. And we've yep. got to create the space and time um, to, to be able to talk about these things and I guess having this narrative and these conversations on shows like this for all the listeners out there I guess where, where everyone's open to having these discussions and and, uh, and don't be a stranger Absolutely I just want to close with the question that I finish with all of my guests um, How does Dave Poir define resilience? Um, to me resilience is about you know Doing the work, right? Doing the work, even when you don't necessarily see the the fruits of what you're doing, or the fruits of your labor. You got to trust the process. Um, you know, take your licks when they when they come. Um, you, I think it's knowing that whatever you're 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 working on, if you have a why, if you have a if you have a, a real intrinsic why as to why you're doing something, then you just got to have that belief, and you got to trust the process, and you got to keep moving. And and it's not going to be linear. You're going to have setbacks, whether that's in sport, whether that's in business, whether it's in your personal life. But as long as you have, as you hold, if you hold true to that why, uh, and you know, it's, it's a, a bit Shakespearean, but you know, to not own self be true, right? If you hold true to that, um, then, and, and you keep moving and you learn from it, I think that's a really crucial part is that you learn from your, uh, from the circumstances that you're in, whether that's success, whether that's failure or setback, you that's to me that's resilience just keep moving forward even when no one's watching especially when no one's watching uh, that you're doing that 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 work for yourself and for whatever you're working on yeah do the work get it done turn up every day it's a it's a common theme of what we hear but it's also it's common for a reason it's because we know that it works yeah you have absolutely. to do the work absolutely david it's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you more congratulations on your journey thank you for sharing um, so uh, in, in a lot of depth and also um, the stories that got you to where you are um, best of luck with what the future brings for gradability um, where can our um, where can our listeners get a snapshot of what you're doing and, and what you're about 
Uh, best way to do that is uh, www.gradability.com.au. Um, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn, I suppose, David Poir. Uh, if you look me up, there's not many of us around. <laughs> no problem. Well, I hope to catch you up uh, um, in the future. Thanks again for your time today and uh, enjoy the rest of you there. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Building Resilience Podcast. Make sure you hit subscribe or follow wherever you listen. Thanks to our guest today, David Clark. I appreciate your time. Thank you to our sponsor, Securo. If you'd like to know more about me or Securo, you can head to securo.io. Securo, plus tomorrow. This podcast was made by Afternoon Sport Group. Afternoon Sport Are you thinking about making a podcast? If so, contact the Afternoon Sport Group. We'll make it easy. With the technical know-how and industry knowledge, we'll get your podcast up and running in no time. Get in touch via our website or email hello at afternoonsport.com.